Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. This passage here, which covers Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, hits the Song of Moses. And as you might know, that we have the Song of Moses and also the Song of the Lamb that we had talked about there from Revelation chapter 15. Now, you may also recall that there is another Song of Moses there in Exodus chapter 15, and we touched on that uh, earlier today when we were talking about the Red Sea crossing, and it's called the Song of Moses. Also, you could say the Song of Miriam, because she and the women that were dancing there by the seashore were singing the song. So when you're looking at the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb that they are singing there in the day of the Lord, and they are singing there before the throne. It's a very interesting picture then, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. So one of the things that we get from this particular passage just on a high view of Ha'azinu, Deuteronomy 32, is that this is about being observant of the Lord's instructions, but certainly not about being holier than thou, because that is one of those things that is noted in this particular passage and some others we'll be taking a look at today is that if you think it is about how fantastic you are, about how wonderful you are before God because of the things that you do, uh, you'll be sorely mistaken because one of the great lessons that is given there, and we'll take a look at in more detail, when it says, I found Yaakov in a wasteland. It's basically a poetic way to say, uh, it was not so great, not such a fantastic nation. In other places it says, it's not because you were the greatest of nations, or the most numerous, or the wealthiest, or the most powerful. It was because of a man's trust. Abraham's trust that he had of the one who was leading him. And there you see it recorded in Genesis chapter 15, where it talks about that he trusted God, or he had faith in God, or he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul talks about that extensively in his letter to the Romans, that this is a key aspect of trust in God. That trust in God is, if he is going to lead you, are you afraid when you come up against fantastic odds? Whether you're at the Red Sea, your back is against the wall, you've got an army that's coming down upon you, and there is no escape. Do you trust at that point? When you, the one who takes you through the sea takes you to the mountain, is feeding you day by day, giving you water out of places that doesn't look like are going to provide water. You see the descriptions there about honey from a rock. 
water from a rock. Things that you don't think are going to be sources of sustenance, yet they are. Because who is the one who's leading you? The creator of heaven and earth. You know, this is not, if you think in the, in the, in back in the time period, the deities tended to be you know, bifurcated or even separated further than that into all kinds of different categories based on your particular need, whether it be fertility, crops, and the rain, and on and on and on it goes about various deities. And then in the land of Canaan specifically, there was all kinds of different deities. You know, we hear about a couple of them in particular, Asherah, which is a fertility goddess, and the Baals, and that's plural because there was a lot of them. We know of some that are mentioned by name specifically, Baal Sephon, and others, or the, the Lord of the North, but they were basically all the storm weather gods. And if you're in an agricultural community, well, weather is kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, the forecast here is for rain coming up over the weekend. And I can guarantee you the people who own that vineyard across the street are worried about it because their crops are about ready to harvest. And rain at harvest it can be a big, big deal. So... You want your rain to come when you need it and not come when you don't need it because that can be a huge problem and destroy everything that you've been working for. So what is about being observant of the Lord's ways is about listening to the creator of heaven and earth, listening to the creator when the creator is speaking, observing where are these lifestyles that the way the Lord is leading? How does that diverge from everything else that's going on in the particular world that you're in? And you see those mentions of it in this particular chapter as well. So uh, some other, when we take a look at just on the big picture, uh, the structure of this particular chapter uh, one observation is, is that it's a part of a particular type of ancient literature of the particular area where it's in the form of like an expanded prophetic lawsuit. So uh, hopefully you haven't <laughs> been a, uh, served a lawsuit before, but lawsuits uh, are not a fun thing to either be involved with or to receive. But in lawsuits, you, you know, and in our courts here, we have a kind of a similar structure as they've had in times past. You name the parties. So in verses 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy 32, you've got like an introduction and you're summoning the witnesses to call to hear. Then verses 4 through 6, you got a summary of the accusation of Israel's disloyalty. And then verses 7 through 14, a recital of God's loving actions for Israel, which are the basis for the charge. Basically, the Lord has loved Israel. So why is Israel being disloyal and running away? Verses 15 through 18 of Deuteronomy 32, an indictment of Israel as being disloyal. Verses 19 through 25, a declaration of the decision to punish Israel. And then verses 26, 27, the 
God declares the risk to the name if the other nations see Israel destroyed. A risk to the name, the reputation, what people think of when they hear the name of the Lord. So when they hear about the God of Israel, do they laugh or do they shudder? So it depends on what has happened to see the groundwork ahead of time. If the, we always say, has your mind been poisoned beforehand? So that when you hear a certain name, suddenly you think something. For example, one of the, you might recall from some of Paul's letters from the book of Acts, and when Paul was visiting some congregations and he goes to talk to them about Yeshua, and they're like, well, we haven't heard about him. So that was a congregation that hadn't been poisoned ahead of time to have a certain conclusion that they have reached already in who Yeshua is, or you'd probably say who he is not according to those who are spreading the word ahead of time. So, thus, when you see the same thing talked about Israel, and you see it reflected on in the prophets, that the name of the Lord is what? Blasphemed or made common among the nations because of you. You have taken the reputation of the Lord and dragged it down by behavior and you might say also just the people's presence in exile brought the name, the reputation of the Lord down for the reasons that are mentioned in this particular chapter. Yes, we all have done that about bringing the Lord's reputation down by the way we behave. And then verses 20 through 42, where God, instead of taking it out on Israel, takes it out on her enemies because the Lord has mercy upon Israel. And then you see the last part of the chapter is about heaven being called to praise God for his actions. Very similar thing to you see in Psalm 29. So another way to look at the chapter 32 is uh, some other examples of lawsuits in other parts of scripture, such as Isaiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 6, Psalm 50 revelations one through three including all those messages to the seven assemblies that you are seeing there in asia as it calls or modern day turkey so those are all a part of the indictment or you could say the lawsuit against not only the people of god but also the nations as well but another way to look at the chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is what is called a chiasmus, which is a Greek word that just means the letter chi in Greek, which is an X. And that, just like you see with an X, with two crossbears meeting in the middle, so too with a chiasmus, you have it where you have parallels throughout the structure of it. And we've talked about these um, chiasmus structures that we've seen in other parts of scripture before in this particular chapter what you have is the same thematic thoughts and phrases that will show up at the beginning and the end of the passage for example in um and this actually starts and uh, actually if you scroll it back a little bit into the last part of chapter 31 
where it's the introduction to the Song of Moses. So Deuteronomy 31.30, where you got, it says, the words of the song. Say the words of the song. Recite the words of the song until they're finished. And you see the same thing down in chapter 32, verse 34, uh, verses 44. Then you see back in chapter 32, the first six verses are talking about a faithful God without deceit. And that's paired with chapter 32, verses 36 through 43, where it talks about there is no God besides me. So not exactly the same phrase, but it's the same thought. And we'll get into what is under the hood of those parallel passages here a little bit later. But in back to chapter 32, verses 7 through 8, you, the passage is key there. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And that is paired down with verses 27 through 35. And we'll see more of this as we unpack that, where the phrase says, these foes would mistakenly boast. And all of this is building toward the middle thoughts that you have in Deuteronomy 32, verses 19 through 26, where it's the wrath of God gets poured out. That is where the focus of all of this structure is going toward. So that's the high view of this. Now, these chiasmus structures are throughout the Bible. There's even, they're, they're even throughout even the apostolic writings. For example, a, a good chunk of John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, is a chiasmus that focuses down upon who the Messiah actually is and what is actually happening with the incarnation. So let's unpack this a little bit to the first part of it. The words of the song. Now, Yeshua uh, warned about the apostasy that was going to come after his return to the Father and the approaching day of the Lord. Matthew 24, 12, and also uh, Matthew 13, starting verse 25, and also Luke 18, 8. So, a couple of these passages. Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So that's in the midst of the passage there in Matthew 24, where he's talking about, well, what are going to be happening down at the time of the end? So he explains us that part of that is that lawlessness is going to increase. Lawlessness is going to increase. And most people's love will grow cold. And one of the things that you see throughout Scripture is these parallel ideas going together. You see this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as well, where you'll have one thought, and then you'll have the same thought repeated or opposed to it. So here you have the parallel ideas of lawlessness increasing and people's love growing cold. Well, you might say one's flowing right out of the other, because the Apostle Paul brings up the same point in Romans chapter 1, where he's talking about where you have the people will lose touch with who the creator of heaven and earth is. They'll lose touch with the creator of heaven and earth. And because of that, 
then what happens? You start having a cascading dissension down in how people treat each other, down to where you have the last part of the chapter is where you know people are murdering their uh, they're betraying their parents, parents betraying their children, and going on and on. And even those who you think should know better are actually approving of this. And you see an example of that as it shows up in uh, Paul's first letter to the congregation in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, where he has someone in the congregation who is behaving reprehensibly with his... Uh, mother-in-law stepmother thank you stepmother and one of the things that they say in that is that hey the gentiles the fellow pagans don't behave like this even they think that that's reprehensible but this congregation was proud about their tolerance of this situation so even though they could say something was wrong with this, they still were condoning it and even saying how, how great are we in our tolerance. So Paul says, no, for his sake and the sake of your congregation, you need to say, no, you really can't stay here anymore. Not because you're holier than thou, but because you need to help him wake up. You need to, as Paul says, let him go out and let the adversary sift him to basically have a turn at him. So you see in the second letter, thankfully, thankfully there's a sequel. So 2 Corinthians, we actually see what happens in the result of this. And we see, yeah, he did turn around. And he had that, as the apostle Yochanan says in one of his letters, he had that godly sorrow where he saw, hey, I've, I'm going off the cliff here. I need to turn around. Uh, yes, Danielle, go ahead, please. My dad gave this really good analogy because you're just talking about this this morning. And he said, like, uh, when you have a scab, a wound, um, if someone keeps poking at it, someone keeps... It represents like someone hurting you. If someone keeps hurting you over and over and over again, if you don't move your hand, it's gonna stay there and it's gonna keep hurting and hurting. But once that scab heals, once you move your hand, like you still have to forgive that person that's been hurting you and poking you. But you still on your hand like you like um, a scar that you have a scar. When someone keeps poking at it, it doesn't hurt. Like if someone doesn't again, it won't hurt, and you still forgive them. But again, you're gonna remember that they did it, and so like there's a difference between forgiveness and holding a grudge. Yes. At some point, you're gonna have to let someone go, and it's not because you don't forgive them; it's because they're not letting you move forward in your life. And there's a difference between that. Yeah, and that's actually just discussed here in in Deuteronomy 32 and the, some of the parallel passages that we read for, first, especially that Kenan tackled there in, in 2 Samuel 22, where it talks about vengeance and where the actual vengeance is to be delegated to. Because when you think about it, 
a lot of people can get extremely bitter after you have a intense correction that happens. They can get really bitter about what is going on with them. Like, why is this happening? And we have seen this in some particular times in history where people have given up their trust in God because of the correction that comes down upon the whole community of it. And they just completely hold that grudge out for the things that are happening rather than saying, hey, vengeance is his. Let that part go. Uh, yes, Rose. A simple thing. Uh, right now I have a sliver in my finger. Mm. It's not bothering me right now. But if I don't get it out, it's going to fester and become infected. It's going to hurt the rest of my finger. Yeah. So when there's a situation like that in a group or a congregation, it is necessary to put that one out so it doesn't infect the rest of the group. It's yeah. like you were just saying, people can get bitter and have attitudes. Well, if he can do it, I guess I can do it. Or, or get bitter and then they leave and the situation still hasn't been changed. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's something that it is painful to do, but you have to, for the, for the sake of the person and also for the sake of the group, you have to do it. But one of the things is, what is your attitude toward the person afterward? You know, are you, as, as they, it's described there in Matthew 18, you know, you are to treat the person like a tax collector or such, not that you're going to scorn them, but say, hey, that person is far off. They need to be brought near again. So treat the person like, hey, this is a time to reapproach. And hopefully that nudging will just continue to help the person reapproach and to come back again. Yes. And go ahead, please. Reading the um, days of awe mm. of Job, and I, at one point I was surprised when he said, and I admitted it to Bill Dad or one of them, I was at ease in my life, and then all this calamity had come upon me. And uh, <clears throat> what I was saying to myself is, boy, I could say that. I'm at ease, and, <laughs> and, uh, but then Job, Job kept insisting that he was righteous. And, uh, but, the, but the statement, you know, all of us could say, well, things are going fairly good. I'm at ease. But be careful with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually something that uh, we'll be getting to here shortly. One of the other passages here in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, which um, is part of a parable. Yeshua presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while, he was, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the weeds and went away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it be have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, 
Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For a while you were gathering up the tares, you might uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the, the interesting aspect of this is <laughs> quite, quite a, a very long, 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 long discussion goes on in rabbinical literature about just this particular sort of thing. Wheat and tares, or as it's called in rabbinical literature, the zunim. Because when you look in a lot of lexicons, a number of the lexicons, whether will say the underlying Greek word into this, the zizanion, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, zuzin, uh, or zunin, I'm sorry. So zunin, it is what is translated as tares, but what you see it talked about in a number of different parts of rabbinical literature. For example, in the... Uh, tractate, which is called uh, in the Mishnah, which is the first crack at it before the Talmud came along, it's called Kilyaim, which means to mix together. And we might remember there is a number of passages in the Torah where it talked about don't mix together two types of seed and this and that and the other. But the interesting thing is is that wheat or the chetim and the zunim are considered to be of the same thing but they're not and that's one of the weird things about this is that this particular uh, variety now it's been called various things about like the uh, bearded ryegrass or uh, such because in its earlier stages of it when it's just starting to shoot and to grow it looks identical to wheat but when you get closer to harvest, then it looks enough different that you can make it out. Now, the, the interesting thing of what this particular type of, of grass is called throughout uh, the world is this bearded ryegrass, is that it is highly susceptible to a type of fungus infection that if it gets it and you eat it um, in varying doses, it will give you hallucinogenic uh, things. And if high enough of a dose, it will kill you. So it is bad news stuff to have in your, uh, in your crops. So a very interesting illustration here from this that is talked about also as a great metaphor because you'll see this discussed in rabbinical literature a lot of wheat and the zunim together. That uh, there's even one quote parable that blames the flood on the transmutation of wheat into zunim. And that is being a bit of a character lesson of what happens when you have something good like wheat, it sustains life. And then it gets into this thing, which becomes a host for something that can be deadly or highly deleterious in this. And it's a very interesting picture that you see talked about of 
from wheat becoming into zunim, into the tares, into this bearded ryegrass, which can be um, highly a bad news part of your crop. And it is everywhere. It's like the, the, the modern distribution of it is pretty much any place on the planet. Anywhere where there's a crop, this stuff grows. And it likes growing amongst uh, crops, especially wheat crops. So it is everywhere. And it, it is highly susceptible to being infected, which should start ringing some bells in your head. Because this particular parable that we're reading about here in in Matthew 13, comes right after what? What is right before this particular parable? Uh, <laughs> chapter 12. Thank you, Rose. <laughs> Matthew 10, or 13, verses 10 through 23, is a long parable of the sower. So in that particular one, and you'll see the shades of that in the first part of this particular parable, where it's like, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the fields. So he's sowing the good seed in the field, which was where you started out with the parable of the sower. And what was the thing of the parable of the sower? You've got the hard soil, you've got the rocky soil, you've got the thorny soil, and then you've got the good soil. So the, the hard soil, the person's impenetrable, and the word can be just picked off before it even takes root. The rocky soil... You're enthusiastic, but you're cowardly. When any persecution comes, you wither and, and you die. Whatever has started growing withers and dies. The thorny, you're highly distractible, whether by wealth or shiny things or whatever's going on, you can be easily distracted away from whatever is growing and choked out. In the good soil, you're teachable. It'll grow deep and you can make a, an abundant crops that actually does something and feeds people. So thus, the good soil is teachable and productive. So on to another passage here in Luke chapter 18. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, it's interesting because you'll see a lot of translations will put a little margin note in here and say, uh, really, the Greek here is emphasizing the faith. Will he find the faith on the earth? So not just faith in general, I, I believe in love. Or, no, this is, it is the faith in whom? Same, yes, the same faith that you see Israel having a problem with that we read about in Deuteronomy 32. Do you believe God, what he's doing? And that you see that the Messiah is an outgrowth of that. Levi, yes, you've got your hand up there. What is your question or thought? Uh-oh. No. I guess you forgot it. Oh, well, that's okay. Dan Danielle, uh, Danielle has her hand up there. Uh, go ahead, please. Kind of off topic, but um, so at school we were doing this game with like where they show emojis and then you have to guess the Bible story mm -hmm. during chapel. And so they showed this one, it was like of a bear, two boys, and like um, a skull to show that the boys died. And we we're Ooh. all like, What? So first we thought it was Jacob and Esau, 
Because you know how, like, you killed the bear and then put on, like, the skin and, like, that. But we're like, he was like, no. And we're all like, huh? So then the pastor of the church had to come and he was like, oh, so it's the story in um, Kings about the ch- there's, like, 42 boys and Elijah came because um, they're calling Elijah, like, bald head, bald head. Yeah, Kings too. And I was like, so this morning we were able to find out. I was like, I didn't even know that story existed until Tuesday. So it's like, there's so many just mysteries of the Bible that you could find out. Like, yeah, it's one of those things where where you talk about the uh, respect going downhill. For uh, you know, he was uh, quite a respected man. Of even people who hated him respected him. Yet you had a group of youth, and you know, sadly, what they would say was it uh, good looks, beauties wasted on the youth, lots of things wasted on the youth, and whatever. It's one of those things that you have to be extremely careful when you're growing up is that you are very active and also extremely impressionable. So lots of people like to get a hold of that energy. For example, um, one of the great things that Mao did during his cultural revolution, where he totally steamrolled over China and made it the horror show that it really is today, was he got in and captured the youth and got them to start turning on everybody, turning on their parents, turning on their teachers, just turning, turning, turning on them and got them really riled up and very active. So it's, it's one of those things that you just have to be careful because I remember at that age, and you get attacked by a bear. <laughs> uh, yes, Keenan. Also, as Daniela was saying, there was another thing in First Kings where like, I think a prophet, yeah, yeah. There's this prophet, and like it was in First Kings, and he had to go tell I forgot it was like King Jeroboam or something I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Jeroboam. Yeah, and he like um, God told him like to go warn them that the like city was gonna be like corrupted, and he told him not to sit down, eat, drink, don't do anything of the sort, and so like um, then he went and told the king, and the king was about to like. Day, like he was like hey come tell everyone to stop so when the king stretched out his hands his hand withered like started to like i don't know like cripple up and he was like oh please help me help me and, he, and then he helped him so then the king was like oh why don't you come sit down and have food with me and stuff and the guy was like nope god told me not to and that was the first like red flag i was like why would you tell him it's kind of like if um superman told like his weakness was like oh no kryptonite like yeah yeah, then then like that defeats the purpose like then everyone's gonna know that's his weakness i was like that's that's not a smart thing to do well you see a similar thing in the account of uh samson and you're like very interesting how when your guard is down you can reveal what your weaknesses are and it's one of those things that it's important for us to be very 
very observant of what our weaknesses are because we if we fool ourselves that we have no weaknesses we have no vulnerabilities look out because you see some warnings from like the apostle paul there in first corinthians chapter 10 and he says like yeah if you think you're standing watch out because you're about to fall but one of the things that the lesson and he draws from israel's history in first corinthians chapter 10 talking about the crossing of the sea talking about going through the wilderness is that a whole all of these lessons are into do you know what your weaknesses are that's a whole part of like the days of awe and first you get the wake-up call at yom teruah the trumpets are blasting wake up okay turn around turn back because there is coming day of atonement yom kippur is coming up well all part of that is what to reflect upon to remember to re look back on what has come in the time since we we're here last year what has happened do you actually know what your weaknesses are do you do you have you done anything about those have you said lord help me i've got a huge gap in the wall around me it needs to be built up my defenses are severely lacking so a couple of other uh key points here about the words of this song so paul was warning also about the apostasy that was going to be coming he warns of that in acts chapter 20 and in second thessalonians chapter 2 and also you see that you see, in the second part of this chiasmus, where he's talking about the faithful God without deceit, there in Deuteronomy 32.4, that it mentions the words of God are like rain in Deuteronomy 32.2. And we just talked about this, and we just talked about this on Yom Teruah, about the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the important connection of the outpouring of the spirit of god and two particular appointments first one of which shavuot or pentecost outpouring of the spirit you see that recorded in acts chapter two but another important one is at sukkot or the feast of tabernacles and you see that recorded in the gospels there both in john chapter four as a prelude to that where Yeshua is having the interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And to get this interplay, and she is just, you could say, drawing it out of her as she's going to draw water, what it was that she really needed. What is it that she was really thirsting for? Living water. Yes, indeed, living water. And so thus when you see in John chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, Yeshua answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who, it, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And then he goes on to tell her in verses 13 and 14 that, you know, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about this well, the well that Yaakov dug, 
and if you remember the story, we'll be back around there soon again soon, is that he was digging a lot of wells. He was digging lots and lots of wells. Why was he digging so many wells? Well, 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 yes. It's because he would dig one well, and then somebody would come up and, uh, and come up and attack it and basically take it over, and so he would move on to the next one and move on to the next one. But the interesting thing is that people should have gotten a hint and say, wow, this guy's fantastic. He just keeps sinking wells here, there, and everywhere and finding water all the time. Maybe he is like a source of water. Huh, yeah. So then you see there Yeshua at the well, and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this well of Yaakov, you know, water man, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then you see at the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, talking about the greatest day of the feast. So the same day where we have a... Uh, a reminder called the wedding supper of the lamb, and part of it is a, a remembrance of the water pouring ceremony of which this in the Gospels is actually talking about. So in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. And you see that Yeshua explains this, you could say, tag team effort that the word of God and the spirit of God do and why one goes and the other comes. He explains that starting in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And he goes on and explains this, why he must go so that the spirit could come. Because they're a part of the whole package of what God is doing, word and spirit together. Because as Paul goes on to reflect on it, if you are just having the words of God without the spirit of God, what do you have a problem with? The letter kills. The word of God is just what? It is condemnation. But with the Spirit of God, that is what brings life. And thus, it is of no consequence, or coincidence, I mean, it's of no coincidence that you have the Spirit of God descending upon Yeshua at the, at the baptism to bring this in. And so thus you see why Yeshua says to Yochanan, it's like when Yochanan is saying, hey, why are, am I immersing you? You should be immersing me. But he says, no, this must be done for, to fill up, to pleru all righteousness, to fill up all righteousness. Because deeds, instructions, following instructions, without the Spirit of God within you is dead. 
the letter kills. It is just condemnation. Because as Paul emphasizes, you know, hey, if you want to follow the law, you better follow all of it. Because if you miss any little part of it, you're toast. Well, everybody's toast compared to that standard. So thus, we got the Day of Atonement coming up, which is talking about, as Leviticus 16 brings out, it is a covering for sins, transgressions, and iniquities, all those together. And iniquities especially is the thing that only the Day of Atonement can deal with. And it's also something that's featured in the New Covenant prophecy of Deuteronomy 31, where it says, I will remember your iniquities no more. And if you back up the tape why that is, it's because that he puts his spirit in our hearts, writes his laws upon our hearts. Thus, word and spirit come together to actually take the instructions of God and be able to do something with them. Kind of like a seed going into good soil and growing up and having a root system that will go down and keep going down until it hits the water where it needs to grow and being able to then grow up and produce a crop. Uh, yes, uh, Daniel, you have a comment or a question over there? Thing about the like pick and choose thing, um, I feel like that's also why there's like a billion different religions now. Because like everyone's like, hey, I feel like God wants me to do this, but I really don't want to do that part. So hey, let's make a religion where you like where you don't have to do this, but you have to do so much of this. And that's why they want like that's why there's so many religions now because of like all like how everyone just wants to do things on their own way. And like that's why the world is turning so crazy because everyone's like, hey, I want to be different. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to do what God says. And even for those who don't who don't believe in God, um, our, in theology, our teacher was telling us like everyone believes in something. Even if someone says, oh, I don't I don't believe in God, they still want something to believe in. Like that's why some people believe in science. Some people believe in like other things like people have that urge in them to believe in something they just don't want to say oh and like people also want to do the people that don't believe in god they want they do everything in their power to change to do everything in the power to do something against what god says like or changing what god says to be evil like god didn't make the rainbow to mean pride he made it to mean a beautiful like as a promise to us but the devil put it in people's minds or people just began to think oh i don't i don't want the rainbow to mean what god says let's change that to mean something that god doesn't want us to believe in yeah because you know you would think that rainbow comes from rain rain should make you think about something that's significant that happened with rain and with a lot of rain, why that actually happened. Because as it talks about before all that rain came, that violence was increasing upon the earth just without measure. And people were just all, as it talks about, all their thoughts were violent all the time. There was nothing restraining them up to that point. 
So thus, you had to have a reset button. So that is what the rainbow should be reminding us about, but also that the promise of that after the rain, there was a promise from the rain sender that never again am I going to do it this way. No, it's never, it may rain a lot, it's going to rain a lot, but it will never rain like that again. So that, that should be what we remember with that. Uh, yes, Christine. Also, if we just take that rainbow another step further, so if we have the shemine and the mine, what's done in the heavens on the earth, that rainbow is a cyclical. We only see half the bow. And if we go back to the root word, a bow, it's Torah. So the bow can be both a promise, and it will, in Revelation, talk about the writer will come out with the bow. And so it can be, it depends on where we are. It's a contronym. Where do we stand? Where are we as believers going to stand? Are we going to look at the rainbow and say, oh, we're gravy, or understand that that rainbow is also in play from the thrones of God, and there will be judgment upon the earth? Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, Tammy has a comment or a question over here. Oh, and I'm sorry, before that, uh, Pamela's had her hand up. So uh, go ahead, Pamela. I want to know a couple of scriptures. Um, the one that about the Spirit of God and the word bring life, but the word without the Spirit brings death. Yes. Where is that, that address? I'll have to look up the specific address for you on that. Tammy, could you help me with that? The letter kills, but the spirit brings life. So we'll, we'll get that for you here shortly. Okay, Thank also, you. Uh, Acts 20, you were also uh, carrying together Acts and some other reference. Acts 20? Uh, yes. That was um, Acts uh, 20. Verses 29 through 32 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Um, Jeff, that yes. other reference that um, Pamela was asking about, it's 2 yes. um, Corinthians 3, 6. The New Living Translation, he has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Yep. Thank you, Thank you. Well, yeah, it's 2 Corinthians 3 6. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 3 6. Got it. Thanks. Back for a second to what Christine said about the rainbow and what Daniel had kind of brought up about the rainbow. Kind of reminded me of that conversation you and I had briefly last night where we're watching this little snippet of a video of this uh, historical Korean drama where they're showing this guy practicing his bow skills. And the and the person with the camera that's taking a picture of this, he walks in front of the guy. He's got the bow drawn, and here this guy's walking just right in front of him like nothing. Yeah, that would get you thrown off of a range. Yeah, if, if that guy had a gun, that would have been even yes. worse. But it got me thinking about what Christine said. What side of the bow do you want to be on? Do you want to be behind the guy with the bow, or do you want to be in front of the guy with the bow? Behind. behind. That's right. Yes. Because... Like that rainbow, the word for that is, it's, it's not just meant to be something pretty. 
Right. It is a res- it is a reference to a drawn bow. Yeah. So what side of the bow do you want to be on? You want to be behind the guy with the bow, or do you want to be in front of the guy with the bow? And that's a yeah, choice we, were, we all have. We were talking earlier about uh, children, and one of the things the scripture talks about is like children are like the arrows in your quiver. So be careful at who is loading the the who is loading your children into which bow is it the parents that are sending off the children into the direction toward the target or are somebody else firing them off in some other different direction to miss the target all right so that is um where we'll bring things down for an end so just kind of a recap of the chiasmus of Deuteronomy 32 is that the punchline of this is in the wrath of God, the wrath of God coming. Now, also in the midst of the wrath of God God coming, it is also the mercy of God in there toward the ones who really, really deserve the wrath coming down upon them. But rather, that wrath that was supposed to go toward the people of Israel then gets deflected toward Israel's enemies. And, and, and Israel, the people of God, get ransomed out of the own mess that they put themselves into. And even out of the mess of treachery against the one who delivered them. So the one who delivered them from the enemies of God is also the one that the people of God have inflicted blasphemies of bringing the name, the reputation of God down. That is where those acts of treachery against the king of heaven and earth have gone against the king of heaven and earth. Yet the king of heaven and earth comes and bails out those who have been treacherous. Indeed. And Christine was noting, doesn't he judge them? Well, yes, going through the deliverance as well. Now, one of the things we talked about just recently is that the deliverance is just for a remnant or a small part of the original. And that's, it's one of the, the sad sorts of things is that, yes, as Yeshua says, many are called, but few are chosen. But the call just keeps going out. Come back, come back. And as Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11, those to whom the original call goes out were blinded for a purpose, for just like we read in Deuteronomy 32, that I will make you jealous for people who are not a people, and they will be brought into the family of God. Now, the people in the family of God should see that as a wake-up call to say, well, what is actually going on here? But that veil will be, at some point, removed. That veil will be removed. So we just pray that those whose lineage has brought us the scriptures and preserved the scriptures over thousands of years, that that veil will be removed soon. 
and that, as Paul says, then all Israel will be saved. That is the hope. But, you know, as you read the Revelation and throughout Israel's history, that hasn't always been the case, that there is a call that goes out. But do you actually respond? And one of the key aspects, and we just talked about that with the living water, is that the Spirit of God is what actually helps us respond to it. As Paul puts it in another passage, that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. To those that have no influence from the Spirit of God, it is what? Foolishness, gibberish. It doesn't make any, uh, as the people at Mars Hill said to Paul, what is this babbler trying to say? It makes no, absolutely no sense. But to those who are being called and to respond, it's like this is life. This is the water that will deal with our thirst that we feel and that we actually respond to that. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.